Welcome to the Malaysia in Deluge series of podcasts about Malaysia's 15th general elections, or GE15. I'm Kian Wong, and with my colleagues at MASA, the Malaysia and Singapore Studies Affiliate of Australia's Asian Studies Association, we're discussing the themes, tropes and tendencies of GE15 with all sorts of experts in politics, the economy, the polls, the media, religion and society. In this episode, independent pollster Ibrahim Sufyan of the Medeka Centre tells us about the uncertain conditions Prime Minister Ismail Sabri faces as his UMNO-led Barisan National Coalition jostles for advantage ahead of Election Day on November 19. Can Malaysians find relief from tough times and better government at GE15? With private polling indicating a tight contest, is a winning coalition even possible? Or will deals for power only be done once the elections are over? Ibrahim Sufyan, you've been doing a bunch of private polls and also some presentations to corporates and to think tanks over what has been a very tumultuous couple of years since the so-called Sheraton move that removed the reformist government in February 2020, the reformist Pakatan Harapan that won the historic 14th general elections in 2018. So barely two years into a five-year term, that government collapsed. Malaysia has experienced effectively three prime ministers and their governments in three years since then. So G14 was historic for one reason, you could say, but are we expecting that G15 would be similarly historic, if not even more important, except the picture is murkier this time? Yeah, I think, you know, what differs between G14 and 15 is that the opposition parties have fragmented even further. Uh, and what makes it uh, a little harder to read is the uh, configuration of the parties that are contesting, but also made more interesting due to the influx of 40% of new voters comprising people who are really uh, now eligible at 18 years old and above, as well as those who were previously eligible but didn't bother to vote. So we have upwards of nearly 5 million people in the electoral roll, so comprising about uh, an increase of 40% from 2018. So we have large numbers of people who are coming on board. The vast majority of them are actually Malay Muslims. And so there's a big question mark in terms of will they follow the patterns set by their predecessors, by their forefathers, by their parents and, and elder siblings, or will they vote differently this time? Uh, the other thing is, since the fall of the Pakatan Harapan government, the third coalition, Perikatan National, you know, in some ways offers a more viable Malay alternative to Barisan National. And so will young people go there and then in the interplay of the you know vote choices the choices that are being offered to voters how they make their choices and the interactions between malay and non-malay support levels how will it how will it change the outcomes as far as parliamentary seats are concerned this is what uh, we are grappling with right now in terms of looking at surveys and then trying to extrapolate the results you mentioned uh, when you speak about the opposition, you are really talking about what had been the historic opposition that surprisingly won power in 2018, right? That's who you mean. Yeah. That th This is the opposition known generally as Pakatan Harapan that is now splintered, fractured, 
and in a way facing a group that's splintered from it called Perikatan Nasional, which seems to, according to some of recent polling that you've done, cannot be ruled out as a potential significant minority. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, this opposition front, you know, has always had at the two ends of the political spectrum, you know, pass on the Malay part of the spectrum and DAP on the non-Malay part of the spectrum, they have been a permanent feature in the political arena. But then, you know, since 2018, we have a splinter from AMNO, which is Bersatu, and in Sabah, Warisan, they have uh, fractured AMNO's base and taken away perhaps somewhere in the region of 10-12% uh, Malay support away from AMNO and into the uh, opposition uh, space. Now that Bersatu under Mohidin Yassin has partnered with Hadi Awang's PAS, they have, I think, uh, formed a fairly significant bloc catering to the Malay electorate. And that leaves Pakatan Harapan together with the DAP uh, firmly entrenched in the non-Malay spectrum of the political arena here in Malaysia. Given the fact that as we approach GE15, these two sides, Rikatan National and Pakatan Harapan, are not cooperating. They are contesting against one another. But the reality is that they have their optimal space in different parts of the spectrum. So the focus is still, you know, against Barisan National primarily. Big question here is that how well can Barisan National, specifically AMNO, hang on to its Malay base in the context of a more expanded electorate? And to what extent Pakatan Harapan, which is very dependent on the non-Malay electorate, be able to motivate its voters to come out to vote as they did in high numbers in the, you know, several elections in the past? Of course, the other thing, as you were you know, mentioning, is this um, much-anticipated and expected and speculated upon a uh, big influx of new young voters and other voters, which roughly make up about, what, a quarter of the voting electorate, right? We're talking right about... Right now, yeah, 27%. 27%. Overall. Right. So, 6 million new voters thereabouts, Yeah. Yeah. And nobody really knows at this stage which way there is any trends in terms of who they're voting for, um, but they reflect that new, mostly Muslim Malay demographic who are newly urbanized as well. Well, I mean, majority of these young voters are living in urban areas, you know, particularly those in West Malaysia. But in the, in, in the East, in Sabah and Sarawak, most of them are in rural areas. And they largely represent people who didn't register even when they were eligible. So you have a situation where I think in West Malaysia, the youth vote, you know, is uh, I think more critical and less uh, less dependent on government assistance and and perhaps more urbanized in terms of the outlook. And of course, um, the the problem here is that everyone, I guess, including the what effectively three to four Malay political groupings are all looking to uh, win their votes. But the issues that they're all trying to win on, if we uh, go by your polling at the moment, the concerns primarily about the economy and secondly um, about uh, political instability, right? So 
what do you think Perikatan Nasional versus Barisan Nasional versus Pakatan Harapan? What what are they able to offer them to you know clinch the deal? Well, I think with Pakatan Harapan, you know, uh, to start with Pakatan Harapan, they uh, I think are fighting from behind in the sense that ever since they lost power in 2020, there there's been a lot of uh, internal soul searching, and uh, it hasn't they haven't really gone out uh, in a big way to cater to the youth vote. That space has been taken up by parties like Muda, led by Said Sadiq, who's you know, form a political party specifically catering through the, for the youth uh, electorate. But at the same time, Perikatan National, specifically PAS and Bersatu, we think that you know they, they have presented themselves as an alternative to Barisan National, at least as far as the Malay electorate is concerned. And what we do notice is that in the state elections in Johor, which took place in March 2022, quite a significant number uh, of young Malay voters uh, chose Perikatan over PH. Uh, so in a place like Johor, where place like Johor where AMNO is the uh, principal party uh, where it originated from, we were quite surprised that you know more than forty percent of younger Malay voters who came out chose Perikatan National over over BN over AMNO. So so our uh, assumption is that. If in a place like Johor, where AMNO is really strong, and they can barely get fifty percent of the Malay youth vote, can one imagine their hold in the Malay amongst Malay youth in states in Kelantan, in Terengganu, in Kedah, and likewise uh, in the Klang Valley and and states like Pahang? So we anticipate that there is some likelihood that parties like PAS is making inroads into the Malay uh, vote bank. And why is that so? Uh, I think number one, it's how people are getting informed. Younger people, well, I mean, in Malaysia, likewise in other parts of the world, the mainstream uh, primary media has lost its, uh, you know, pool or ability to win over public. It's facing the same economic and coverage challenges like every other media outlet in the world. Uh, and that space has been taken up by social media and peer-driven content and, and also, you know, clickbait uh, content. And there, I think uh, the youth are, quote-unquote, you know, like educating themselves, making their own uh, judgments about the political uh, parties and the leadership of the country. It also doesn't help that, you know, AMNO has not been able to completely clean up its leadership slate. It has not been able to rejuvenate. It's still led by controversial figures. And that, in many ways, impedes AMNO's ability to reach out and connect with younger people. That's number one. Number two is that we have the pandemic, which has made people even less interactive openly. And so more reliant on social media. And in that time, uh, a lot of Malaysians suffered economic hardships, especially within the Malay electorate. And many people, <coughs> I think that, <coughs> sorry, that episode exposed the constraints and limitations of the Malaysian government and notably AMNO as a party. So I think as we move forward, AMNO's reliance on its six-decade-long development track record, independent story, that doesn't mean as much for younger Malay Malaysians as it did in the previous generations. For many young Malays, they have to compete just like everybody else. They have to borrow money to get educated. They have to compete 
on the lower end of the economic scale, they have to compete with cheaper foreign source labor for wages that have not really increased in 30 to 40 years. So there's a great deal of unhappiness there that mere rhetoric on race and religion can assuage. So Amno does face an uphill challenge in trying to get at the Malay vote, provided they show up on election day. And I suppose what you're suggesting as well, and it seems to be indicating in how you've been tracking the satisfaction or not of the broader electorate, is that the delivery of government has been quite poor as well, right? I mean, this has been a remarkable period of turmoil in governance, which people, uh, well, they've stated second only to the economy is this so-called political instability that everyone's so upset about, right? So they don't see politics in many ways as uh, the route to solving this problem, do they? They don't. Uh, and so in other surveys that we've done, 70% of the youth you know, have a very negative view about politics and politicians, per se. And for many of them, the political instability you know, manifests itself in the form of you know, snap state elections, abrupt changes of prime minister, uh, frequent reference to the king in order to you know, win support and all that. Uh, different political leadership coming to the media space claiming that they have support all the time when you know the country was reeling under the pandemic and lockdowns uh, and not a lot in terms of communications or messaging about showing empathy with the challenges that ordinary families were facing in the country. For many young people, you know, politicians have come across to them at least as a bunch of self-serving individuals who are more keen about preserving power or gaining power and the attendant economic benefits that come with it, uh, rather than really genuinely trying to address the challenges facing the country. So, of course, the thing is, in some ways, incumbents like Barisan National would actually be relying on that disenchantment to have lower turnout to their benefit, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think a part of the premise for Barisan National to do well uh, is that it needs to turn out to be low uh, across the board so that then they can mobilize their loyal base of supporters to show up and vote as they did in Malacca at the end of last year and also in Johor earlier this year. So if uh, urban voters or younger voters don't come out in large numbers, and I say large numbers, anything less than 70% voter turnout, then uh, the advantage uh, goes to Barisa National and AMNO because they do have a fairly sizable base of support, perhaps numbering up to 35 to 40% of the electorate. And out of that, uh, they will be able to get a plurality of the vote and, and win across. And, and that's how they won in Johor. In Johor, I think the, the turnout rate was somewhere in the 60% range. Uh, but in urban areas, it was far lower than that, maybe even 50, 55%. And Amno won 20 seats out of, I think, the 40 or more than 20 seats with less than 50% of the vote. It's pretty much because A, the opposition was split and B, the opposition supporters didn't turn out in large numbers. And so at the end of the whole 
electoral process in Johor, what we found was UMNO's actual base of support in terms of popular votes did not really change compared to 2018. In fact, it shrunk a little. But because the opposition was split, UMNO was able to get a super majority in the state assembly. Mm-hmm. And this is the this is the issue, I guess, of how democratic government or democracy might or might not work, right? If there is a big enthusiasm gap, uh, people don't come out to vote, you end up getting actually the worst of all worlds in some ways. You, you get a, a group that ends up being in government by default. Yeah, yeah. And, and so this is, uh, in a way, the dilemma, because uh, on one hand, you know, you have a lot of political parties and they're contesting. In some ways, that is... Uh, a manifestation of uh, a democratic process where political parties are formed and then they you know compete but at the same time they are going against uh, a situation where the country is transiting from a dominant party uh, situation to one where there's uh, multiple parties and the uh, old dominant party still has at least for now a sizable base and so if the opposition forces are not united then their support is, you know, dissipated across many political parties. You know, that's that's the general rule of thumb. At the same time, because there are so many political parties contesting, some voters may think that their votes have become less effective. They, their votes are worth less because it's split across many other competing forces. And so some may decide that they don't want to show up because they are, the party they support cannot win. Uh, so that's uh, another problem that we are seeing. But, you know, we have to see, you know, how things go because uh, one thing that's peculiar in Malaysia where, you know, the multi-party contest that we are seeing may not completely be so bad in terms of producing competitive elections is that because of the heavily gerrymandered seats, um, you know, the Malay seats are largely seeing a contest between PAS and AMNO or Bersatu and AMNO. And then in the multi-ethnic, multi-racial seats, you're seeing mostly PH versus AMNO, you know. So even though there are other competing parties there, uh, there is still a semblance of real two-party competition in some segments of the uh, electorate. So if I were to be a bit more uh, detailed about it, is that in areas where, in constituencies where there are more than 70% Malay voters. There, the real contest is between Perikatan National and, and Barisan National. In the constituencies where it's 60% uh, Malay voters or less, is between PH and BN. Uh, and it's only in the 60 to 70% range, so not very many seats where it's really a toss-up. So I think we're looking at maybe... 25 to 30 seats, you know, out of the 222 seats in the house, uh, where things are, uh, I think, a bit harder to fathom. So in some ways, you could say uh, Peninsula Malaya's politics and the way power is contested now is, you know, merging or getting closer to what traditionally has been said to be Sabah and Sarawak's much more fractious, multi-party type of politics, right? Yeah, it is. It's uh, moving in that direction in that we have, you know, multipolar power bases with sizable supports, but neither big enough to command a majority. So it forces them at some point to compromise. So that's, that's I think, what we are looking at right now. And quite, and quite fluid 
type of coalitions, right? Well, I think right now, you know, maybe not so fluid in the sense that, you know, the Malay parties are in like having their own thing and then the non-Malay parties pretty much is Pakatan Harapan. Uh, yeah, you know, but uh, I think the demographics, you know, make it seem more comparative because if all the seats were, you know, fairly drawn, then I think it really gives a, a at least for this particular election, an advantage to BN. But because the seats are so badly drawn up, then, you know, it has created imbalances where it's more competitive now than before. That's the irony, though, isn't it? Because the seats were badly gerrymandered and drawn up precisely under a previous era for BN where they thought this would give them the advantage. Yeah, because, I mean, the seats were always drawn up to fight the last war, the last battle. You know, nobody can anticipate what comes next. And therefore, you know, ideally, you should just do the right thing. You know, you should have more representative seats in the state. And then, therefore, it forces the parties to compromise before elections. But now, you know, because they presume that the next election is going to be like the previous ones, they're stuck with it. Uh, and so it doesn't, doesn't serve them. The, how does this actually, in some ways, benefit or give hope to something like Pakatan Harapan, speaking of hope and coalition, because one thing that they did not succeed in doing very well at the 2018 elections, Pakatan Harapan, was actually win more Malay votes. And since then, it appears from your polling that the share of Malay votes by Pakatan Harapan has in many ways crashed. Is that just a peninsula Malaya sort of phenomena? Or have we got you know, other things to consider here? Well, I mean, uh, number one for uh, Pakatan Harapan, well, they, they won 2018 with about 20 over percent of the Malay votes nationally. But, you know, it's heavily skewed in the west coast of the country where the number is, you know, upwards of 25 to about 40 percent in some places. Uh, so that, that allowed them to win. And that's why it was quite hard to anticipate the outcome in that election. Right now, we think, we think it's about maybe 15%. It's moved up a little over the last few months. Maybe it's around 15%. Uh, but that 15% is nationwide. So what it means is that in areas around KL and certain parts of Selangor, the numbers are pretty good, you know, maybe in excess of 30%. But in other parts of the country, maybe in Johor, it's slightly less. Uh, and so, you know, their prospects are very dependent in terms of where they've had the base. We think that in a place like Negris Milan, because they do have control over the state government, their numbers there have improved as well. So, um, so it's really spotty, you know, in the sense that uh, the base of support is correlated with where they hold political power. Uh, and so their chances are good in those places. Uh, so for them to make good, you know, nationally, they really ought to maybe consider, you know, states like Perak, where, you know, it's a multiracial uh, electorate there. States like Johor, multiracial as well. Those were two states where they won a lot of seats in 2018 and therefore they ought to invest time to build their party base, uh, expand the party, recruit uh, members and also uh, leaders, candidates that can connect with the ground there. I mean, for Pakatan Harapan, just to have a simple win, they don't really need a lot. If they can get 25%, of the Malay electorate and then drive up the turnout of the non-Malay voters, they could do quite well in the general election. And what, what they um, seem to be relying on, the discussion appears to be um, that everybody, including Pakatan Harapan, feel quite tentative about anyone winning a, 
an absolute majority on its own. Everyone seems to want to win a plurality of the seats in order to what get a seat at the negotiating table post election. Well, I think it's not that they are they are hesitant about winning. I think they are very realistic about their chances. And I think the the tragedy of Pakatan Harapan is that when you know PKR splintered and certain individuals left, the people who left represented the right wing element of the party. And so the party, you know, is is pretty much the left wing, you know, the more progressive or what you call it, liberal wing of of the party. And, and that makes it very hard uh, to connect with the Malay ground. And I'm not sure whether you know the guys in charge there. Uh, are really aware about you know the positioning the left and right you know the ability to hold there I, I think to a certain extent they do so if you look at the list of individuals that they have recruited to run for this election there is an effort to you know reach out to the Muslim base you know they've recruited Nick Azizan uh, some youth leaders that came out from Abim so I think the attempt is there to connect but you know it's kind of late in the day you know it might still work out we still have 23 days to election but the reality is that that you know it's just the party is just left with one wing uh the right wing element is gone the other thing is also within the party itself with the splintering there's also a lot of uh you know um there's a lot of bad feelings you know uh within the the different factions that make up the party and the charges and counter charges of uh a betrayal and things like that. Uh, so some of it, you know, is genuine, but some of it is mass as posturing in order to win support within party elections. And also, I suppose the other complaint that some people are making, uh, especially among urban voters, is to, to criticize Pakatan Harapan to say, don't keep telling us what is wrong with the other side. Tell us what we should vote for you for. What are you actually for? So there's a lot of negative campaigning, I suppose, on all sides. Who's actually providing right. a program? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you know a lot of us are waiting for that as well, uh, and I think for many of us, think that you know if they come up with a party platform over the next couple of days, it's not really going to move the needle that much because you know you know it's just a perfunctory exercise about you know trying to put something on a glossy pamphlet and 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 hand them out uh, because over the last several years. Pakatan Harapan really has not shared any kind of groundbreaking concept or specific things beyond the existing rhetoric of uh, you know good governance and transparency and anti-corruption. So that's basically it. Uh, and and the corruption topic, you know, governance is something that their supporters are keen about. So they do want to keep hearing that. But I think if they were to reach out to the marginal vote, to the swing voters, they really need to talk about their ideas about strengthening the government's fiscal capacity, uh, you know, growing the economy because, you know, the country is facing a lot of challenges. Uh, raising, also, raising, um, raising incomes, I guess. That's one right, thing. Yeah, basically, you know, wages, you know, wages and incomes and also uh, business opportunities. So that, that hasn't come across. In fact, you know, none of the parties have said much about that you know so what we anticipate you know when these parties unveil their manifestos perhaps over the next few days it will be more populism uh, it will not speak about the elephant in the room which is the subsidy and government revenue problems that's a can that they're going to kick further down the road and, and voters you know for the most part uh, will not be asking about that as much yeah, it would. I mean, one of the things that we think would drive uh, the election dynamics would be, you know, within AMNO and the other parties, 
uh, are they dropping some key figures you know they they might be controversial yes but they would be locally influential uh, are they dropping or keeping uh, people and when they drop so called warlords uh, is it going to create uh, a revolt uh, at least or internal sabotage within certain yes. spaces that's Which one. Is what happened in 2018 mm, mm. Yeah. so that's i think critical uh, likewise, uh, you know, we uh, also just wanting to see the final word within PH, the admission of MUDA, or at least the coordination with MUDA yes. from, you know, the rumors that we're seeing, hearing, it appears that, you know, they, they sort of worked out uh, the thing, but today's news about Said Sadiq having to enter into his defense. Mm. Uh, now, now, I mean, wondering how, how is that going to play out, uh, you know, electorally? Uh, because I think his opponents are definitely going to latch on on that. Um, and I think finally would be, uh, I think another important topic is like, who is Barisan National's real prime minister candidate? You know, is it still Isman Sabri? Is it something that voters believe? Or is it someone else? You know, and then the, the perceptions surrounding Zahid Hamidi, you know, because uh, our survey seems to indicate that, you know, this is quite an unpopular figure. And uh, if he continues to be prominent, and then I think that's going to severely affect uh, Barisan National's uh, ability to And that's, to that's indicated in your polling, right? That he's a drag on their vote. He is. Uh, and, you know, what we've noticed over time is that the overt voters' preference for Barisan National among Malays, that has been declining, you know, over the last several months. And as seems to have been the case after parliament was dissolved. So uh, we'll see our pre-election survey that's, uh, that we are wrapping up uh, over the next day or two. And then as we start uh, election nomination period and the campaign formal campaign period begins, uh, we are going to see the, uh, we are going to track sentiments as well and, and then see whether or not uh, you know, Barisan National can pull off and get the bigger share of the seat or, or otherwise. That was Ibrahim Sufian of the Medeka Centre. You've been listening to a series of podcasts on Malaysia's GE15, produced by Kian Wong in association with MASA, the Malaysia and Singapore Society affiliate of the Asian Studies Association of Australia.